Is America now, or has it ever been, the last best hope of Earth? I'm Adam Smith from Oxford University, and this is the podcast that looks at America from the outside in. Buffalo, Uvalde, Orange County, Tulsa, now Highland Park. Locations of recent high-profile mass shootings, but every day there are more shootings. It feels like mass shootings are becoming as American as apple pie. In this episode, gun violence in the U.S. is far, far worse than anywhere else. When it comes to mass shootings in particular, America really is exceptional. The explanations for this are many and complex, but the politics of gun ownership and gun restriction are framed by the Second Amendment to the Constitution, which states that a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. As with so many other divisive political issues in America, the politics of guns is inseparable from the Constitution. And no one knows more about this question than Saul Cornell, the Paul and Diane Gunther Chair in American History at Fordham University in New York, the author of prize-winning books on legal history, including A Well-Regulated Militia, The Founding Fathers and The Origins of Gun Control. Saul, thank you so much for joining me. Let's start with the basics here. The first 10 amendments are known as the Bill of Rights. Can you just kind of set up for us why the Bill of Rights was passed in general and why this particular amendment was included as number two? Sure. So to begin with, the Second Amendment emerges like all of the amendments to the Constitution, although it's worth pointing out as originally the Fourth Amendment and only became the second after the first two were not approved. So you oftentimes, for instance, hear people say, well, obviously, it was the second most important to the founders. But in fact, if you were to be so literal, you'd have to say it was the fourth most important if you were to go back to the original amendments that they proposed. So the original Constitution didn't have a Bill of Rights at all. Most of the Federalists, the people who gave us the Constitution, thought it was either unnecessary or in some cases even a pernicious idea to include one. The obvious uh, reason for that latter idea is we can't get everything right. We won't put everything we need to protect in it. And if you think about some of the recent controversial cases that came before the Supreme Court, including a case on abortion, that right to abortion was, was, was premised on the idea of privacy. But the word privacy doesn't appear in the Constitution. So it's a perfect example of why that fear that Hamilton in particular articulated actually had a certain kind of sense to people who who had grown up in a different legal system, who'd grown up with English common law. Well, they they were they were Englishmen. They were Englishmen in in the colonies. And for much of the early period of of the conflict between colonists and the government in London in the 1760s and 1770s, Americans were articulating their grievances as Englishmen and petitioning the king for their rights. So they grew up in a culture, they were used to engaging in politics without a, a formal written bill of rights in the in the sense that they then created the sense of giving individual rights to citizens. So it was a new concept anyway, was it, to 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 write down, to transcribe in some permanent form as part of the constitution, not as legislation, not as court cases that accrued rights over over time through the common law, but to put into the foundational law of a new nation, these are the inalienable rights of people as individual citizens. That was a new idea. 
It was it was a new idea, and there wasn't complete agreement at the time about how to read those documents either. So the idea that there's a sort of single original meaning that we can uh, deduce, which of course is the dominant mode that the current Supreme Court is using, doesn't really correspond to the diversity of thought at the time, that this was in fact a new experiment. People had different views about how these texts ought to be interpreted. The other thing uh, to keep in mind, and this again is very hard for modern Americans to understand, is we live with the most powerful standing army in the world. Uh, in the 18th century, as heirs to a British tradition, people were very suspicious about standing armies, which is to say professional armies. And because of the realities of being uh, colonists on the edge of the British Empire, surrounded by European powers and in almost constant state of warfare with the uh, tribal populations of the eastern United States, they needed something to protect them. And, you know, again, we, we assume that there are there are police forces and that there are armies, but in fact, there was none of that. So the militia becomes this central cultural, social, and military institution that is a bit like a combination of the modern National Guard, the Rotary Club, the Boy Scouts, and um, probably a fraternity because there was an awful lot of drinking that went on. I mean, it's really important. We we need to we do need to get into militias since they the phrase a well regulated militia is right there in that Second Amendment. So perhaps we can pause on that for a moment while we're still thinking about how the Second Amendment came to be, because um, this tradition of militias uh, goes way back into English or Anglo American. Uh, history, doesn't it? And I mean, can you kind of sketch out for us a bit more then what, what's the sort of ideological and political difference between being a militia man, being having a responsibility to be part of a local militia and being a soldier? The militia, as it was understood in the 18th century, is an institution that's hard to find a modern analog to. Mm. There are plenty of groups that call themselves militias, aren't they, nowadays? Uh, yes, there the... are, particularly in America, but the <laughs> yeah. founding fathers would have called them mobs, yeah. because the key thing about the militia that's so hard to map onto modern categories is that it is citizen soldiers. So they are not a professional army, but they are not just a bunch of guys who get together on weekends and pick up their guns. They are a legally constituted uh, institution rooted in the local community and they are well-regulated, which is again, a term that's very, very hard for people uh, today to understand because the opposite of well-regulated liberty, which is what the Second Amendment is part of, a general scheme of how you view government and law, is licentiousness. And that's a word that is almost completely dropped out of modern English. The idea that there could be forms of liberty that are destructive of the republic and dangerous to people's well-being, that's hard for modern Americans to accept. But that was key in the founding generation. And on the one hand, you had tyranny, obviously terrible. And on the other hand, you had anarchy. And as good students of Roman history, uh, they understood that this was the perennial problem, how to steer a course between these two poles. So there are two sources, two different threats to liberty. One, as it were, comes from above. It comes from a tyrannical king. But the other comes from licentiousness, from mobs, from the people having too much unregulated, undisciplined freedom. Exactly. So being part of a militia then was not just something that you might do because you like shooting guns on a Sunday afternoon. It was an obligation 
that was a consequence of your membership of this political community. Exactly. And in modern law, we tend to think that the very definition of a right means it's a strong claim against government interference, that in fact, it imposes a duty or an obligation on others, perhaps the government, to respect that right. The idea that a right could actually exist so that you can meet an obligation is, again, very deeply rooted in Anglo-American politics and law, but again, very strange to modern ears. I mean, for instance, most people don't uh, understand that the first statement of religious freedom in the Virginia Declaration of Rights premises that right on your duty to worship the creator. That's why you have the freedom. We don't think of that. We don't think that there's an obligation buried in our right of religious freedom and free exercise. You actually have a right not to actually worship anyone in the modern American conception of liberty. But that would have seemed quite alien to the founders. So let's get back to why the 1787 Philadelphia Constitution was written in a way which did not include a Bill of Rights then and why there was then a movement led by people who collectively are sometimes described as anti-federalists to incorporate a Bill of Rights post-ratification. Although there were compelling intellectual arguments about why a Bill of Rights might not have been necessary or perhaps could even be pernicious, that did not resonate with the American people. And so the, the absence of a Bill of Rights, which existed in most, but not all of the first state constitutions, became the best argument that the anti-federalists had to resonate with the people. And it became quite clear by the time Massachusetts was debating the Constitution, sort of in the middle of the ratification process, unless there was an informal assurance provided that there would be amendments and they would address some of the concerns, uh, which included both issues of individual rights, but also checks on government power and on federal power in particular, there would be no ratification. So ratification is premised on this idea that we will eventually have these amendments. And it falls to James Madison uh, during the first federal Congress, who was an ardent opponent of the idea of amendments to craft a set of amendments that he thought would assuage those anti-federalists who in good faith had perhaps too little faith in the government. You know, anti-federalists were sometimes, uh, in the, at least in the modern historical literature, described as men of little faith, although they had faith in some things, they just didn't have faith in the federal government. So Madison shepherds this 117 odd amendments that are proposed, narrows them down to 17, then to 12, and what we now have is 10. So the idea here was that this new federal government, which of course was a stronger national government than the independent United States had had previously. It had tax raising powers through the tariff. It had the right and the responsibility to conduct United States uh, foreign policy. It was a means of ensuring that there was a single market within the United States. It did all of these things and it included election to the House of Representatives and indirectly for the president. All of these were things that that hadn't been the case before. But one of the consequences of creating this new stronger central government was the anxiety that having a new government cited as it was initially in New York and then Philadelphia before before moving to the newly created Washington, D.C., was that it might replicate some of the, as it were, far off distant government with the temptation to act tyrannically that Americans had been rebelling against um, from the government in London. And since the state governments already had 
bills of rights to limit what state governments could do, it seemed to most people then necessary that this new federal government would have a similar set of restrictions placed upon it. So the point of these amendments then is it's restricting what the federal government can do. That's the, that's the key point there. And given what you said then, Saul, about the militia and their role, would you say that this Second Amendment, with that phrase about the security of a free state, what's the free state being referred to then? Is it, is it possible to interpret this amendment as being actually about states' rights, about ensuring that the federal government didn't interfere with the right of a state government to create a militia and arm it? So I'm glad you you you, you raised that because most modern debate over the Second Amendment uh, takes a kind of dichotomous view. If you're for gun control, you like the militia part. If you're a gun rights person, you like the shall not be infringed part. And very few people will actually pay attention to the middle, which is the security of a free state. So I would say that our modern categories where, where we, particularly after the modern civil rights movement and the close association of states' rights with segregation, we tend to see states' rights as antithetical to individual rights. In the 18th century, at least for those who were heirs to this anti-federalist tradition, there is no separating the rights of states from the rights of individuals, because it is through the right of the states, particularly to, to legislate and regulate their internal police, another concept that you don't hear much about today, but that was central to the way they thought about law, that that was the only way to protect liberty, this, this well-regulated liberty. So I would say that the, the problem with, you know, talking about the Second Amendment as either an individual, collective or state right is it's sort of all of those things and none of those things at the same time. It is a peculiar 18th century solution to a set of 18th century problems, obviously problems um, that some of which we have today and some of which we don't have today. So it's very hard for Americans to imagine uh, because of the Civil War that states could actually mobilize their militias, not as a kind of individual Second Amendment check, the way you hear about today in Michigan, uh, but as a state check, as, as a kind of final way to enforce the boundaries of federalism. And this, in fact, happens during 1800, when there's a chance that Jefferson will be denied the presidency. He writes to the governors of, of, of uh, Virginia and Pennsylvania and says, you should have the militia on ready. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't come to mm -hmm. that. But that option, that whole mm -hmm. uh, strand of American political and constitutional thought, which is quite viable in the 18th century, is no longer viable today. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. makes it very hard for us to understand how they could have seen the Second Amendment differently than us. Americans always know, or they at least always used to know, the story of the coming of the American Revolution, the, the first shots fired, the British are coming and the British are coming. Where the British were coming, I believe, is where the Redcoats, the standing army of the imperial British government, were coming to was to a militia armaments. They, they were going to try and seize the store of guns and gunpowder that the local militia in Concord had had secured. So, the, 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 I mean, that's a perfect example, isn't it, of of the the a scenario uh, in which, as it were, the, the second which the Second Amendment was designed to prevent ever happening again. A, a strong central uh, standing army taking guns not from individual people by going into their houses, but by going to the well-regulated militia stores, as it were, and preventing 
the community or the state or the, the, the county from being able to mobilize itself in defense of liberty. Yes, exactly. And the other thing that's important to keep in mind is when we think of disarmament, we have this image of government agents coming door to door to take guns away. That's the kind of great uh, conspiratorial fear that drives so much gun rights ideology in the modern period. But in the 18th century, the great fear of disarmament after the American Revolution is that government will do too little to encourage people to own the right kind of weapons they need to participate in the militia. Unlike in modern America, where you know people want to have AR-15s, in the 18th century, people wanted guns that were useful on a farm. They want to be able to rid their fields of pests. They want to be able to hunt birds. And a heavy military brown best musket was not really well suited to that. Nobody takes a bayonet when they're going hunting for a turkey. The big problem, uh, again, is not that government is overbearing, perhaps, although there is that fear that the federal government might use its standing army uh, or the militias of one state against the militias of another state. But there's equally this fear that simply by not doing enough, the American militias will fall into, into a poor state of discipline, poor state of armament, and that will slowly erode the freedom of the American people because their states will no longer serve that vital function in the federal system as the check on federal tyranny. That is key to understanding this world. We, we know now, for instance, that although America was very well armed by English standards of the day, uh, there were hardly any pistols, you know, because they were expensive and not efficient. And the guns that people had were more like uh, light hunting muskets or uh, fowling pieces. And, you know, we also know that there was very little use of guns in homicide, that they simply took too long to, to load, that keeping them loaded was not a good idea because the powder was corrosive. So our debate, which is all about individuals checking the federal government and individuals who fear for their lives because of the chaos uh, outside, that's not the 18th century world, which is a rural agrarian society of communities where people, nobody buys a gun anonymously. You don't go to Walmart and buy a gun in the 18th century. You have to have a very close relationship with your local gunsmith if you want that gun to remain in good working order. So we're always trying to translate from that world to our world, which is one of the problems we have in trying to make gun policy based on an 18th century constitution. So how do we get from that world to our world? Um, it obviously doesn't happen uh quickly there's no sudden shift but if we move forward a few decades Saul, into the 19th century there does come a point when despite the way you've described gun ownership in the 18th century as being you know overwhelmingly about control of pests and hunting there comes a point in the early decades of the 19th century when state governments and they are the ones the federal government wouldn't worry about this state governments are the ones responsible for uh, policing for maintaining order and state governments start to worry about in some instances about gun violence and the possibility that having armed citizens is going to contribute to the kind of disorder which is going to undermine the well-regulated disciplined liberty which is uh, which is what they want so there are efforts then made, aren't there, by state governments to regulate guns in the 19th century. So how does, how does that go? And on what basis do they try to do it? And how does the Second Amendment become involved? 
the modern gun debate as we know it, which pits gun rights versus gun regulation, really is an artifact of this later period that you've just described. The market revolution makes a host of commodities available from curry and knives prints to wooden clocks. It also uh, makes guns cheaper, more reliable. And once you have easily concealable weapons, pistols, that are no longer sort of expensive items that Alexander Hamilton might own in case he's involved in a duel, that's when you start to have a perception of a gun violence problem. So we're talking by the 1830s or so here. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So somewhere between the War of 1812, which is a huge boost to the American gun industry, and the 1830s, you have a proliferation of a deadly assortment of weapons from concealable handguns to Bowie knives, to Dirks, to the Arkansas toothpick, which is another edged weapon. And Southern states, interestingly, take the lead in passing laws against these. And that generates the first state uh, cases in which the constitutional right to bear arms under state constitutions is tested in court. Now, one of the most interesting things about that is why weren't there cases elsewhere? You know, what is the dog that is not barking? And it turns out outside of the slave South, there's a different tradition of regulation, one that is more individualistic than the English common law tradition from which they derived uh, early American law, but is not quite as libertarian as the Southern tradition, which the Supreme Court has now elevated to the law of the land. You know, it's, it seems odd that we would take our cues, moral and policy from Southern slave owning judges But that kind of thick contextual understanding doesn't seem to inform the way the Supreme Court thinks about how it uses precedent. When the Second Amendment was passed and the other amendments that formed the Bill of Rights were passed, the concern was about an overmighty uh, federal government. In 1861, of course, the Civil War broke out and the Civil War was fought by militias. I mean, it was there wasn't there was a standing army, but it was very small. And so the state governors called up the militias in both the northern states and the, and the southern states, and, and it was they who initially fought the Civil War. But then after the Civil War, the uh, 14th Amendment to the Constitution was passed. And the 14th Amendment, um, which we've talked about in other episodes on this podcast and will no doubt return to because it's the single most important constitutional uh, innovation since 1787, the 14th Amendment uh, re engineers the relationship between citizens and the federal government. So how did the passage of the 14th Amendment change the Second Amendment? A great question. And there is a narrative which has gained some traction that essentially argues that whatever the Second Amendment meant in the 18th century, by the time of the 14th Amendment, it had become individualized and was about self-defense and in particular was written in response to the Black Codes, which selectively disarmed Southern uh, freed persons. Uh, the problem with that analysis, of course, is that after the Black Codes, Republican governments uh, are in control in the South, and they are not anti-gun regulation. They are the heirs to the old Whig view of the well-regulated state. They pass a slew of gun regulations. They're all racially neutral, but they are absolutely essential to demilitarizing the public sphere in the South. And that part of the story that what the what the 14th Amendment, the Second Amendment do is a uh, make it uh, impossible to selectively disarm portions of the American population based on insidious distinctions and require the individual states to treat their citizens equally 
in regards to any uh, regulation of firearms. That view of, the, of the, the complicated relationship between the Second and the 14th Amendment, which is historically essential, has not yet permeated the public and in particular the legal constitutional debate. Um, most people, again, tend to look at the Second Amendment, the 14th Amendment, as though it's a simple direct line, you know, that sort of the, the militia morphs into the, into the free men, uh, you know, picking up a gun to protect themselves against the Klan, which certainly happened. But what that ignores is that one of the most important institutions in the reconstructed South, much as it was important in the 18th century, are the new Negro militias. They become Negro militias. That's what they're called at the time, because once you allow African-Americans to serve in them, uh, whites in many parts will not participate. Mm -hmm. But you cannot have voting. You cannot have any kind of public political uh, sphere of any kind without some kind of policing mechanism. And these new Negro militias are become essential to that. And they become a source of pride They become an institution that helps organize African-Americans. That side of the story has remained relatively unknown, but it's key because one of the biggest debates in America now is the relationship between race and guns. And that is a long and complicated history. And there are two competing narratives, neither of which is, I think, satisfactory. One is gun control is always racist because gun control was often racist, but that's not the same as saying it's always racist. Or the Second Amendment is racist because it's basically about slave patrols and genocidal warfare against the uh, indigenous population. Also very true, but not the full mm. story. So is there a sense in which the, the creation of the so-called, as they were called at the time, Negro militias, would you say then that that was in a sense in the spirit of the... 18th century idea of why the Second Amendment was passed, because what they were was a civic obligation in order to protect freedom in this chaotic, threatening, destabilized post-Civil War South. Yes, I think that sort of civic function of the Second Amendment is very, very important. I, I do think there's no question that individualism, the word that comes to us through Tocqueville's Democracy America, its English translation, you look at the, the, the state constitutions written during the time that Democracy America is written, the Jacksonian period, they do change the language of arms bearing. They do say, uh, the 18th century would say the right of the people to bear arms in defense of themselves in the state. And Mississippi in like 1817 changes that language to each citizen has a right to bear arms in defense of himself in the state. Now, I've never been able to get a satisfactory answer from people who say it's always been about individual rights, why that radical change in language occurred uh, in state constitutions. Gosh, that's so interesting. But in the context of, as you've just said, the, the market revolution and changing and developing technology, which made guns uh, more easily available, there was a shift in the pronouns from, from the collective themselves, defending themselves to himself. Right. In, the, in law, yeah. You can even see it in some public works of art where the quintessential 18th century representation of the armed citizen is Washington as Cincinnatus or the death of General Warren at the Battle of Bunker Hill. The quintessential Jacksonian image is Daniel Boone locked in a hand-to-hand -hand combat with a hostile Native American. Uh, and that is a very different sensibility. Also, if you look at all the modern iconography of militias and gun rights, it takes a 19th century standing soldier, no kneeling slave, but just the standing soldier monuments of the Civil War era 
and elevates that 19th century vision of the 18th century as the iconic image of the militia. So it is what the modern National Guard uses as its symbol, but it's also what the Michigan militia and, you know, what mm -hmm. all of the gun rights iconography at the Capitol riot had was, again, a they 19th also, century version of the 18th century. Yes, they also use the term Minutemen, don't they? The, the Minutemen were the, were the 18th century militia. But would you say the same applies to that? This is a kind of, this is an idea of the revolutionary era Minutemen refracted through the 19th and early 20th century. Absolutely. Looking at the United States from outside, but it'll be equally obvious to you looking at it from inside, there are you know, famously more guns than there are people in the United States. I think the latest estimate is there are about 400 million guns, firearms held in private hands uh, in the United States. That's not including the, the however many hundred thousand or million guns are held by law enforcement agencies in the army, but 400 million guns held in private hands in the United States. 80% um, of homicides in the United States involve guns. Only 4% of homicides in the UK involve guns. But even if you compare the US with a country like Canada or Australia, which obviously has a similar kind kind of history of frontiers and hunting and so on, that's still double the proportion of homicides that involve guns that the Canadians have. And of course, the number of mass shootings, which people who track these things um, say there are at least one a week mass shootings. I mean, the ones that we tend to hear about are the ones where large numbers of people are killed, but mass shootings in which there are multiple casualties from a single shooter, there's at least one a week in the United States. You can't say, well, this is all because of the Second Amendment. But I mean, how would you as a historian, as someone who understands all of the nuances and the context of the passage of the Second Amendment back in the 1780s, I mean, how would you try to describe the relationship between the presence of the Second Amendment in the Constitution and this truly exceptional level of, of gun violence that the United States has compared to any other country in the world by a mile? Well, that's an issue that I think about a lot, obviously. And I think with almost any provision of our Constitution, you can uh, talk about what did it mean to the people who wrote it or what did it mean to particular audiences at the time that the provision was written? What does it mean to the courts today? And what does it mean in American popular culture? And there's never a complete lineup between those three ways of thinking about what constitutions mean. But in the case of the Second Amendment, I think there's the most disparate disconnect between all of those three levels. And for much of American history, Second Amendment really wasn't that big a deal. It got mentioned occasionally, particularly in the modern era, when you start seeing the federal government get involved in gun regulation. But it is a very recent development of this radical gun rights ideology that really um, only emerges forcefully. I mean, there are, there are precursors to it, of course, but emerges forcefully after the 1960s, after the unrest of the 60s and federal gun control. And that idea that everyone needs to be armed to the teeth, that uh, stand your ground, which the founding generation did not accept because English common law, the duty was to retreat, that the idea that people would seriously suggest that the Second Amendment empowers citizens to take up arms against the government when the only crime defined in the Constitution is treason, which involves taking mm -hmm. up arms against the government, 
that kind of level of, of cultural cognitive dissonance mm. is relatively recent. So I wouldn't say the Second Amendment uh, has much to do with understanding the American gun violence problem if you're talking about the original Second Amendment, but this modern, re, re, um, this invented tradition around the Second Amendment has become a major stumbling block. Now, some people say we should, you know, just, you know, change the Second Amendment, mm -hmm. amend the Second Amendment. Uh, you know, as a historian, I think we should maybe just understand it a little better mm -hmm. and understand the history a little better. We don't really need to go to, to the uh, point of amending the Constitution. Uh, but there is no question that a Second Amendment ideology has been invented, marketed, and deployed in an extremely effective way. And it also dovetails nicely with other uh, themes in American cultural history. I mean, Richard Slotkin's work on regeneration through violence. There's a reason after the Sandy Hook shooting that people talk about a good guy with a gun. That is one of the oldest tropes in American popular culture. You know, yeah. it's everything from the leather stocking tales to dime novels to the Lone Ranger to 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 Sylvester Stallone and Rambo. To the Civil War itself, actually, I would add, and to, to narratives of the Second World War as the good war. But the but the notion that violence and individual heroism can be redemptive. Um, is an incredibly powerful idea, obviously not unique to the United States, but but one that does have very, very strong cultural resonance. I very strongly agree. I wonder, Saul, I mean, looking at the, again, the, the text of the amendment, I mean, the, the, the anti-gun control people, presumably if they were being honest with themselves, they would want to amend it to get rid of the first clause so that the second amendment would just read the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And then they don't have to even worry insofar as they do. And they don't much, I suppose, because they've got the Supreme Court on their side. But, but they wouldn't even need to worry about whether that first clause offers a caveat to the unalienable rights of the people to keep and bear arms presumably the anti the pro-gun control people would would prefer if they had their own way to remove the second amendment altogether simply to to remove it from the constitution are you perhaps is the consequence of your work and you just said as a historian you prefer to under understand it more is there a third way here uh, a way of contextualizing and understanding holistically that clause in a way that may be helpful in this uh, current situation in terms of the, the debate over guns? It's very clear that as long as there have been guns in America, they've been regulated. And it's very clear that whether you focus on a well-regulated militia or security of a free state, there is hardwired into the language of Second Amendment a kind of balancing of the peace and public safety against the liberty claim of individuals, whether they're acting uh, for self-defense or whether they're acting through their militias to use firearms in a, in a lawful way. So America is never going to be Britain or Canada for that matter. Our history is somewhat similar, but sufficiently different. But the idea that regulation is antithetical to liberty is a modern invention. There's just no analog for it in American history, except among the most extreme fringes until the modern era. So the way that we have uh, undermine this idea of law, regulation, government, uh, that has been corrosive. And that is why we need to understand the Second Amendment as not just protecting rights, but also instantiating the, the most fundamental right, the first right listed in Declaration of Independence, the first grievance against the king is that he has you know, prevented us from enacting 
uh, wholesome laws to regulate our internal police. The right of the people to regulate their internal affairs is the real first freedom. It's not the Second Amendment. And, you know, I am alarmed sometimes when I talk to students and I say, what do you do when a law really makes you mad? I mean, not every student says I grab my gun, but more students than I'd like to say, think that, well, that's then I'm going to grab my gun. That is not even close to the list of the top 10 things you do when your government passes a law you don't like. And the fact that we've made that option um, so readily available in popular culture is disturbing because that is what leads to failed democracies. Is there any hope for the future? I mean, we're in an era now where after the, what was it, 2008 Heller decision um, by the Supreme Court and the, the complexion of the Supreme Court now, is there, any, is there any reason for optimism at all? If you want to try to deal with the level of gun violence, notwithstanding, or perhaps notwithstanding the Second Amendment, perhaps, but perhaps even finding ways of rethinking the Second Amendment in ways you're suggesting to enable governments, state and local and, and, and federal level in the United States to instill something closer to that 18th century sense that gun ownership um, was part of a kind of mutual sense of responsibility and an obligation of being part of a community. Is there any reason for optimism, Saul? Well, I do think there is some reason for optimism, which is saying a lot because I am certainly from the glasses, half empty, cracked and probably filled with poison sort of school of thinking about the world. Uh, but even with that uh, somewhat pessimistic streak, I think what I find to be the fundamental and perhaps uh, disturbing reality is that America is really two cultures when it comes to guns. I mean, there are many local and regional gun cultures, but we really have seen since Sandy Hook, the country drift in two directions. States that were traditionally pro-gun rights have done away with virtually any gun regulation. In many parts, you now have something called constitutional carry, where you don't even need a license to carry a gun. In the state of Ohio, I taught at Ohio State for many years, uh, teachers with 24 hours of training can now carry firearms into classrooms. That wasn't true when I was living there. At the same time, the state I live in now in the Northeast, we have some of the tightest gun regulations in the nation. And the problem is, can our system of federalism, which you would think is well designed to take uh, advantage of these regional and, and state differences, is it equipped to deal with the, the, the common market that exists, the nationalization of the firearms, mm. or at least regionalization of firearms markets? Mm. Because it really doesn't matter if New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts have tight gun laws, if you can drive down to Georgia right. or, 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 or Virginia or even Pennsylvania and buy a gun with, right. with no background check if you're purchasing it through a private sale or a gun show. Mm. Right. I, you know, I oftentimes say that mm. it's unfortunate that the debate over the Second Amendment gun regulation is so divisive because it is one of the most uh, remarkable windows right. into both the fears and aspirations of American society right. that anyone could look for to try and get a window into what is going on in the American right. cultural yeah. mind. I was speaking to Saul Cornell. That a historian like Saul should be so involved in litigation around gun control cases, providing supporting briefs about, for example, the extent of gun ownership in early America, speaks volumes about how far contemporary American politics is anchored in the Republic's founding moment, 
more than two centuries ago. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope podcast. The producer is Emily Williams and I'm Adam Smith. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us a nice review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and listen to the dozens of other episodes on our feed. Goodbye.